Welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast with Shredded Ed, Cardio Johnny, Paul C, Matt Mork Super Troll, and Brazil Hadley. The best infotainment show around where you'll hear us joke, banter, and debunk all the nutritional myths you've heard time and time again, helping you get fit, healthy, and shredded. Uh, welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast. And we don't know what episode it is, as we just discussed before we recorded. Um, I think it's about 43, but so we're, we're getting close to that half century, which is pretty cool. Um, on that, actually, because we said we were going to advertise, and we've only had one entry, which is ridiculous, considering the amount of viewers and or listeners we get. To Obviously, we've got a guest today, Alan, I'll introduce you in a moment. But for your benefit, because you, you, I'm sure you don't know, we put out a, a bit of an advert to say if we want to get a listener guest on for our 50th episode, and we had one person want to get on so far, which might say a lot about our podcast, I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, so if anyone wants to get on, please just get in touch and we'll we'll uh, con- we'll consider it. Um, but yeah, obviously today we're joined by uh, Matt. Hello, mate. How you doing, mate? Good to see you again. Nice for you to Even be on. if it's through the internet, yeah. It's been a long while. Yeah, you, you, we haven't done the early morning um, grind shows, have we? No, I'm very much. Uh, this is this is past my bedtime usually, especially when dieting, as we yeah. said previously. But uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, back for a Sunday evening special. You're all good though. Yeah, yeah, an unfortunate afternoon and as you know, but yeah, I think we're all out now. So I'm just uh, see how it goes tomorrow. But all good. I'll I'll look at it, the positives that I'm assuming you've not had a chance to eat, so calorie deficit and all that. Uh, yeah, I think we went in this morning, probably about eleven. So. Uh, I'm just about to have dinner after this, so yeah, massive calorie deficit today. Good, good, good. Project shoots on uh, on time. Had a schedule. Yeah, and obviously, as I mentioned or, or alluded to, we have a very, very, very cool guest today. So, um, Alan, Alan Flanagan. Hello. Yes, lads. How are you? Good. Um, yeah, good. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, for having me on. Um, obviously, I think we're we're gonna start into focusing a bit on circadian rhythms and nutrition and chrono nutrition as it's known or time of day nutrition but yeah. I suppose before we, we we get into that a bit of background about me I am a lawyer by day um, a barrister actually in here so similar system to what we have in the UK and I got interested in nutrition really in school um, you know, playing, playing, playing sports and playing rugby. Thought it, thought it would help an average player get better. It didn't. Um, but it was always my kind of hobby interest. And I found myself reading more into the subject um, when I was in college. Um, but like a lot of people, probably defaulting to books and blogs. I've always been a relative skeptic. So I, I, I found myself a little distrusting of the sources of information that I was getting because it started to become apparent that it was conflicting. So I started trying to read research um, and I just didn't know how to read research, um, but I started doing it anyway. And I learned a lot in the process, but didn't learn anything about critical thinking about research and wanted to formalize that process. So started a, a, a interest in pursuing a path of actual education and found myself on the nutritional medicine uh, MSc program at the University of Surrey, um, evidence-based medical masters specializing in nutrition that was originally set up for doctors exclusively to try and bridge the gap between nutrition and medicine. And uh, 
yeah, so I'm just kind of in the 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 depths of my dissertation at the minute, which is uh, looking at the impact of nurses working shifts on meal timing and composition in their dependent children. So there's a lot of research in the field, obviously looking at shift work. It's one of the prime examples that we have of, you know, the, the kind of adverse cardiometabolic effects of eating at night and dysregulating circadian rhythms and stuff like that. Um, but no one's really, it seems to date, looked at what happens in dependent children when a primary caregiver in the home is working shifts for three nights in a row. So that's our hypothesis is that they eat later, they go to bed later, they've later bed timing, sleep timing, um, later meal timing, and the composition uh, or healthfulness of the actual meals decreases. Basically, dad throws in open pizza and chips. (laughs) Sounds logical. (laughs) It sounds logical. The original data set was a sociology PhD, actually. Um, and, uh, yeah, took uh, 20 nurses from the NHS working rotational shift patterns. So kind of three nights on, day off, a couple of days, day shifts, and then back at it or some, something along those lines. It's the most common pattern for shift workers, even though it's probably uh, the least um favorable from a from a circadian perspective you would be better off working straight nights and just shifting your phase shifting your circadian rhythm so you became a nocturnal animal basically but that doesn't work for people because if it comes to the weekends they want to maintain a day social <coughs> uh, life go to their kids matches you know whatever um socialize with friends stuff like that so mm-hmm. rotational patterns are the norm across most professions that involve night work or shift work. That's very cool. Um, I haven't looked into the evidence of it too much, although I must admit, even from the stuff that we learned on MNU, um, I kind of got the impression that if you did shift work and therefore kind of your lifestyle went against the, and I will get into circadian rhythms obviously mm-hmm. in a moment, but when it goes against, you're pretty much screwed. Yes, you pretty much are. And these rhythms are inbuilt. They're, for the most part, endogenous. And we have evolved with very specific cues to synchronize those rhythms. And so when you dysregulate them, you're screwed <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. The associations with, with metabolic disease and diabetes and cardiovascular disease um, are quite strong. But what surprises people is one of the strongest associations uh, between this kind of dysregulation and any particular disease is with breast cancer. Um, so there's, and this has been known since the early nineties that circadian dysregulation and artificial light exposure at night really strongly associated with breast cancer incidence. Um, part of the reason we can get into this later, but, melatonin which primarily we have viewed as the sleep hormone does a lot more than sleep it's probably one of the most potent um endogenous antioxidants that we have anti-carcinogenic antioxidants and it's highly concentrated in in mammary tissue and human breast tissue um and so the consequences of continued suppression of that system which usually would peak during our biological night when we're asleep 
seems to go beyond just metabolic disease and extend to certain cancers. It's not just breast as well, pancreatic and um, prostate and a couple of others are strongly associated with uh, with circadian misalignments. Um, so I think that the implications of this, this, this field are quite wide reaching. It's a nascent field really. A lot of the research and part of why it's maybe not in our collective consciousness as much yet is because it's traditionally been confined to animal models, rats and mice and lower organisms and chronobiologists who study this stuff very much aren't, you know, nutritionists or, or they're chronobiologists. So they're in the lab playing with mice and there's, there's been, there's been a disconnect between access to a lot of this uh, research, but it's become, uh, I think, more topical in the last few years, given that we're now acknowledging the really negative effects of curtailed sleep that is pretty endemic throughout society. And sleep is a component of overall circadian rhythms. So I think the links have started to come out. And I think, I think there's some uh, implications for public health recommendations that are that are uh, the thing about this area of research is comp complex as it is when we get into the, the into the weeds the the implications of what to do are relatively simple uh, you know the idea of recommending time-restricted feeding to simply 11 hours of the day you know, that, that's simple stuff people can do on a population level. And, and the very early evidence that's emerging from this in humans is really encouraging. You're taking people's minds off the what to eat part of dieting and calorie restriction, which has traditionally just been such a, a mess for the for, for, for ordinary people, you know, and all the conflicting information they get and diet industry playing on them. And do I need to cut carbs? Do I need to cut fat? Or what do I need to do? And you're taking the removal off the what to eat part and simply putting it on the when and getting people to shorten the period in which they eat could be a pretty effective public health recommendation. Um, so I think that there's some, you know, getting people to be mindful of their light exposure. Um, these are simple things. I think when you do get into some of the more high level recommendations like the light exposure stuff, I think inevitably we'll meet some resistance because our technology is such a ubiquitous part of our daily lives now that the idea of not being in bed with a smartphone six inches in front of your face at 11 o'clock um, and trying to tell people that there's consequences for those kinds of behaviors when they don't immediately notice anything wrong. You know, we, we have that capacity as humans to just like defer risk. Uh, so when you're trying to tell someone, well, no, you see, you know, you suppress melatonin, blah, blah, blah. And they're just like, I feel fine. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. So, so obviously we've, you've hinted a lot there to maybe what circadian rhythms are or, or kind of how they exist. Um, yes. let's, let's kind of give, so I, I guess our, our audience is a lot of general population, general public. So yep. a lot of them yep. may have never heard of that term. Um, yes. So let's start from the beginning, kind of what what is a circadian rhythm? How does it affect you, et cetera, et cetera? So the, the term circadian comes from the Latin circa, meaning around, and dies, meaning day. So around the day, circadian rhythms are the fluctuations or rhythms in different processes we have in the body that are 
basically considered a, an evolutionary advantage. If you're an organism and you have the capacity to anticipate changes in your environment, for example, the transition from resting and sleeping in the night to activity and food foraging or avoiding predators and these kind of things. And all organisms on the planet have a circadian rhythm, down to flies, which actually are one of the, 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 the main research models in this area, up to us. And the organization of these processes, primarily, the fundamental factor that influences it is the cycle of light and darkness. Uh, and that's for all pretty much animals that we would look at, even though not all of them align to the daytime. So owls or uh, mice, for example, their active waking period is our nighttime, is the biological dark period. Um, and so these processes are orientated primarily around the cycle of light and darkness. And in humans, the light or day phase is also the period of activity. It's the period of food foraging. And from a metabolic perspective, it's the period of food consumption. Conversely, the dark period is the period of fasting, is the period of sleeping, and is the period of inactivity. Now, that would be the case in the traditional sense of having no other external variables influencing uh, what we what we do, except we do have those external variables. In in humans, the actual if we were to uh, experimentally put us in dim light conditions where there's no external variables, our free running circadian rhythm would be a little over our normal day. So it's about twenty four and a quarter and a half hours. So in order to keep it synchronized with the daytime, we have external cues in addition to light, that help us to synchronize to the right period. And the most potent of those external cues is nutrient intake or meal timing. And so this recognition has, has really kind of been the, the, the genesis for the interest in the metabolic effects of circadian dysregulation. But at a very basic level for, for listeners, the primary driver of alignment is light. Uh, in particular, the light that you would see if you saw, you know, clear blue sky day, that particular color of blue in the sky is not random to human physiology. It's a specific wavelength of blue light. Uh, light can be measured in different um, contexts, intensity. In this case, it's a wavelength. It's 460 to 480 nanometers will, will look like that blue that you'd see on a clear, on a clear day. We have cells in our eyes that pick up on that particular type of light, and we relay it to a control center in the hypothalamus in the brain. And that is the primary signal that it is a particular phase, in this case, daytime, active, and that will communicate downstream to different processes like our digestive system and our peripheral tissues to anticipate food intake and have metabolic functions operating as optimally as they can be. The second most important variable then that aligns those peripheral you know, tissues like our pancreas secreting insulin or fat metabolism is nutrient intake. And so between the timing of nutrient intake and exposure to daytime, we have two variables that synchronize metabolic processes in humans together.
and a lot of the associations with dysregulated circadian rhythms are due to an uncoupling of the signals that we would get. So an uncoupling of someone's light signals with their mealtime. Most listeners have probably experienced this in the extreme where you've done some extensive east to west travel or, or, or west to east travel on a flight and being jet lagged. And that's really, and typically going, going east is where, so if you flew from London to Tokyo, you're typically going to be in bits for about three or four days while you try and align to that new time zone. And, and that is an example of extreme circadian dysregulation where you might be eating at 8 p.m. Tokyo time, but it's one in the morning London time uh, or something like that. Yeah, it's interesting you said that actually, because I think I was looking at one of your stories when, did you recently go to Australia? Is that right? I did, yeah, yeah. And did you, you changed? I phased shifted before I went, so I wasn't jet lagged, yeah. Um, I spent the day before and then the day of traveling, changing my light cues and my meal timing and then coupling that with an extensive fast. It was about a 26-hour fast. Fasting is a really good way to reset your kind of, your clocks, your internal clocks, so to speak. So what I did was I um, altered my light exposure so that I was exposing myself to blue light at a time that corresponded with around 7 a.m. in Australia. And this is what I'm doing this in Dublin. And then I wore blue light blocking glasses, which you probably see me wearing on Insta, but these things. <laughs> and I wore them during what would have been the daytime here, but it would have been an Australian night. And then for the process of the journey, after a 24-hour fast, I, I, I started eating again, but I ate at times that corresponded to what I would eat in Australia. So I typically, I don't eat early in the morning. Breakfast for me is kind of 10 to 11 a.m. So I, but I ate at you know, 10 to and 6 p.m. on the way down and then used caffeine, which is a great way to delay melatonin onset um, for the flight to Sydney. Arrived at 10 p.m. By that stage, I'd been awake. I'd been lying to Sydney time for almost 48 hours. And I went, went to bed and woke up at 8, PM, 8 a.m. the next morning. <laughs> this was like, I'm here now. And that was great. Uh, I had yeah. no jet lag for 10 days. So no jet lag from that. So it's no, funny. I was a little bit tired in the morning, but like, no, I, I was sleeping full Australian nights the whole time. Usually when people are jet lagged, they're like waking up at odd hours or whatever. But I was going to bed at whatever, 10, 11 and waking up at 7, 8 in the morning. Yeah, so. I think I think that was the worst jet lag I've ever had when I went to Australia in terms of, yeah, you know, it really mucked me up for a couple of days. And you kind of lose a couple of days. Well, that's it. Yeah, because of it. So it was interesting you said that. I was on a tight trip and I didn't want to miss any days. You know, I had 10 days there. So, yeah, it's, 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 you can use um, supplemental melatonin, as well, which I did. Actually, I should, should mention that. So you, if you use daytime melatonin administration before you go, you'll, you'll quite significantly impact on your internal timing. So I was using melatonin here at a time that corresponded with, I was taking it at three in the afternoon. Like, yeah, okay, I was getting a bit drowsy. Um, no, I was taking it earlier than that. I was taking it around midday uh, here. And yeah, you, you get a little drowsy and, and, and you can't use caffeine 
with that melatonin administration because you'll counteract the effects of it. Um, but it works, you know, it, it, it really works. If you need to, if you need to do that kind of east to west travel, um, or sorry, west, west to east travel, which is always worse, jet lag tends to be fine if you're going west because you're going into time zones. So really it's just extending wakefulness um, and staying awake. Um, that's obviously harder the further you go, but again, ca caffeine can help. Um, so yeah, so it's, 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 we, we, you know, these, these processes, what's important, I think just to, I suppose for, so listeners have an idea is when we talk about circadian rhythms, we're talking about the internal processes that run no matter what. So if we take someone in a fasted state and we put them in a dim light room, so they've no other exposures to signal what would happen in, in terms of their internal, for example, insulin sensitivity or their internal um, circulating triglycerides or blood fats. So those things happen independent of behavioral stuff, behavioral factors that we then impose on our circadian rhythm. So for example, triglycerides or blood flat fats, um, they'll peak in the evening, even if someone hasn't eaten all day, there'll be a peak of circulating triglycerides in the evening. And, and again, then at about 4am. So if someone eats on top of that, uh, or they eat a high fat meal on top of that, uh, they're compounding what is already an increase in circulating triglyceride levels, for example. Um, so we have the internal processes that are circadian in nature, they're going to run over this period. They'll have a peak at some point um, and, and, and a trough at another point. And then there's the behavioral cycle, which is what we do, how long we stay up for at night, what our light exposure is like, what time we get up at or what time we have to get up at, which is a big thing that's emerged. So they're all the behavioral things that we then impose on our circadian uh, rhythms and really what we want to try and achieve for kind of optimal health and, and certainly metabolic health is an alignment between our behavioral patterns and cycles and our circadian rhythms. So we're not eating at time during our biological night, for example, when our glucose tolerance is going to be significantly decreased and our circulating triglycerides are going to go through the roof because we've eaten at, at 4 a.m. Um, so the behavioral aligning our behavioral cycles with our natural inbuilt rhythms that we don't have control over is what we're trying to achieve to improve health generally and, and in particular improve metabolic health. No, that's quite cool. I'm glad you kind of summarized it like that because um, there's a lot of detail or content there, which I think obviously some listeners might be thinking, whoa. Um, so if if we don't align our um, habits with our, with these natural circadian rhythms in, you, you've touched, mm -hmm. I know you've, you've said about the breast cancer and some other stuff, but what are some of the kind of like everyday and more general consequences um, outside of me just saying you're screwed? <laughs> what yeah, are the general yeah, consequences yeah. So, for people? So, so particularly from a nutrition perspective, the there's a couple of everyday consequences um, and, and they seem to, and they may depend on the degree of misalignment so to speak but for example um glucose tolerance significantly impacted by circadian alignment in a positive sense 
and misalignment. So we naturally have uh, a variation in glucose tolerance where it typically peaks in the earlier part of the active phase. Um, one thing that I want to say, I suppose at this point, when we start getting into things like this is when, when we, when we talk about nutrition overlapping with circadian rhythms, and, and I say something like early part of the active phase, people always kind of automatically go, ah, breakfast. And it's like, no, I want to be really, I suppose, clear on that, that our concepts of breakfast, lunch, and dinner, for example, are very arbitrary concepts of meal timing. Um, they're often influenced by culture or other variables like that. So when I say early part of the active phase, I'm really talking about, you know, any kind of time between say 8 a.m. And, and, and 12 midday or one, you know, so it's, it's just in that early part of an overall phase of activity, which is typically up to kind of 10 or 11 hours, not an isolated meal. So we'll have enhanced glucose tolerance uh, and, and process carbohydrate better at that point in the day than we would in the late biological evening. There's a pretty sharp decline in our tolerance to, to glucose um, in our capacity to actually take glucose up that occurs in the evening time. And one of the biggest associations that you see with circadian rhythms um, or, or time of day dependent eating is calorie intake past 8 p.m. consistently associated with increased BMI. And part of what may be at play there is this decrease in glucose tolerance. Um, the other variable that is, I think, really important from cardiovascular health perspective is, like I said, this increase in, in, in circulating triglycerides that we have in the evening. So one of the observations in cardiovascular research, which goes back actually till the 70s, is, is this idea that it's a postprandial phenomenon, i.e. postprandial meaning after you've eaten, how well do you process the nutrients, and in this case, the fat, that's actually entered into circulation as a result of a previous meal? And the enzyme responsible for helping to actually get free fatty acids into storage and out of circulation, we don't want them in circulation, is, again, under a circadian variation where it peaks during the the early part of the day and if you look at its activity at say 11 30 at night it's significantly reduced it also is enhanced in its activity by insulin which is going to be impaired with late night eating as well so what happens typically when you look at studies where they measure people's response to food intake at say 11 30 or 1 30 a.m or 4 a.m is you see significantly impaired clearance of blood flat fats in that post-meal state. And you see a really quick rise in the circulating levels of triglycerides. So there are some pretty important metabolic consequences to late meal timing um, that could predispose someone over the long term to, you know, to, to, to cardiometabolic disease. Another really interesting feature that I think is, is, is of interest to anyone kind of, you know, interested in their nutrition is the association between meal, meal timing 
and diet-induced thermogenesis and the thermic effect of, of feeding. So we typically in the nutrition space might advocate higher protein diets to people because of that thermic effect that protein protein has. Um, and for years, certainly in the fitness space, there was a lot of arguing over meal frequency. Was it better to eat six meals a day or three or whatever? And, and we know that that's irrelevant once calories you know, and, and protein are matched. However, there's a bit of a twist out of that from, from the circadian research, which is that diet-induced thermogenesis, how much you burn off as a result of your actual food intake as heat, how much of that energy intake you burn off as heat, is significantly impaired by erratic or irregular meal timing. And there's one study in particular that I can recall where they actually matched calories between the groups, one group just consuming a very fixed uh, feeding pattern and the other consuming an erratic and irregular meal pattern. And the difference in diet-induced thermogenesis was significant and, and significantly reduced. And you see that across the board in the circadian research. You also see a decreased thermic effect of a, an isolated meal, or how much, again, energy is burnt off as heat from that meal with late meal timings. Um, and so when you add those variables up together, there's a lot of what typically happens as well is with late meal timing is you have a decrease in carbohydrate oxidation. So how we actually metabolize nutrients is being impacted and it's shifting people's metabolism away from burning off carbohydrate or, or properly processing it and shifting it towards uh, away from kind of burning to, to, to favoring storage um, and, 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 and fat storage in particular. So, there's a lot of important metabolic consequences to erratic meal patterns, irregular meal patterns, and late meal timing um, that occur because we're consuming nutrients at times that are um, completely disconnected from when our you know, metabolic processes are, are optimal. And, they're, and they're, again, they're circadian timed. They're under that kind of regulation. When you say so late meal timing, so just to kind of put a bit of um, yeah. context or, or um, just to quantify it slightly, so would you describe that more as the, the late night snacker who maybe kind of eats before they go to bed or are we really talking more people that are night workers um, eating in the middle of the night, say, when they should really be sleeping? Yeah, so so both. Um so starting off, I suppose, with, with, with night shift workers, most of the research has been in night shift workers, for example. And we know that's, we know that's really problematic. A really interesting observation from this area of research is that night shift workers don't actually consume any more total daily energy than day shift workers. Um, and this has suggested that the adverse cardiometabolic consequences of shift work are actually, un unlike any other diet-induced condition that we have, somewhat independent of, of total energy intake and much more to do with time of day intake when we're taking food in and the metabolic fate of what we've taken in. So yes, night shift workers, for example, eating during the biological night is going to be really problematic. And it's because, again, we, we a lot of the time in research, we think uh, or we look at the effects of isolated meals. You know, 
it's really important from a nutrition perspective, I think, to remind ourselves that no meal exists in isolation. It's influenced by preceding meals, subsequent meals, and it's the cumulative metabolic effects. So for example, one study looked at the effects of having a snack at four in the morning. The snack was only 240 calories, but the preceding meal, which was at about 11.30, was, and again, this was designed to replicate, rotate a pattern of food intake on a shift. Uh, the preceding meal was 750 calories. And what was interesting was that the increase, the most profound and significant increase in circulating triglyceride levels, blood fats, was after the 240 calorie snack at 4 a.m. So now that would have been influenced by the previous meal, but it's a significant um, uh, you know, impact from what we would view as a relatively low calorie, you know, snack, like a, a 240, you know, it's your average grenade bar, you know, it's so it's, it's, it's quite a small amount of intake having quite a profound uh, metabolic consequence. And it's not, of course, because of just the snack, it's influenced by the preceding meal. So yes, extreme dysregulation that you would observe with night shift work is an issue. And, and there are ways around, um, attenuating those effects, which we can talk about later. But the more interesting thing, I think, for your general listener that perhaps doesn't work shifts is more recent research looking at, um, you know, timing of food. So one study in particular in Spain, which was based off Spain. Spain is a very, a lot of really, really good quality circadian research comes out of Spain and they're an excellent population to study because of their behavioral cycle, which involves uh, late night eating um, traditionally. And one of the observations in a, uh, just an, a, a, an observational study in Spain was the difference in weight loss over 24 weeks in overweight women in response to the timing of their most, uh, of their highest calorie meal, their main calorie meal of the day. And the observation was that those that consumed it before 4 p.m. Um, had greater weight loss over, over, over time. And so the, the, the same group that published that observational study then did a really well-controlled trial in lean women, BMI of 22. It's as, it's as lean as you get from a BMI perspective. You know, I know BMI is fairly useless, but lean, healthy, young women, uh, calories matched, and they matched them for, for breakfast and dinner were both timed at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. respectively. The variable was the timing of their lunch meal, which was also their highest calorie meal of the day. It was 47% of their total energy. And the only difference was one group was eating it at one o'clock and the other was eating it at 4.30. Now, again, in, 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 the, in the context of no one meal being isolated from the others, what it meant was that the group consuming the lunch at 4.30 were also consuming dinner at 8 p.m. 75% of their daily energy intake was, was thus coming in this kind of latter part of the day between, say, 4 and, and 8 p.m. And the difference, the metabolic consequences, and they used indirect calometry, really advanced methods to method, you know, assess resting energy expenditure and stuff like that. The difference was absolutely staggering in terms of metabolic effects in lean women. So you're talking about decreased carbohydrate oxidation, 
uh, increased glucose intolerance. They, they, they had higher glucose in circulation for longer, which basically indicates, you know, decreased glucose tolerance and, and, and a degree of insulin resistance. They had reduced um, resting energy expenditure before the evening meals um, and, and, and reduced thermic effective feeding. So, so you know, this is, this is not necessarily what we would typically consider enormous circadian misalignment. You're talking about 4.30 p.m. and 8 p.m. For many people, that might be a normal pattern of distribution if they, for example, are busy in the morning and, and don't stop for breakfast or don't eat early in the day and end up kind of rolling through their day and, and getting to the end of the day and consuming a lot of energy intake. So it's not what we're now looking at is less extreme disturbances. So typically it's been focused on shift work and jet lag and these extremes, but there's a term has emerged in, in the research called social jet lag. What social jet lag really is, is the discrepancy between someone's actual need for sleep. So how long would you sleep if you had no alarm waking you up in the morning? What would your normal wake up time be, assuming you go to bed at a, at a normal time? Um, what's the discrepancy between that and how much you actually do sleep with enforced alarms or enforced bedtimes? And what's really interesting emerging now, a couple of population studies European-wide in the last few years, the greater the discrepancy in someone's social jet lag, the greater their degree of social jet lag, and the more likely they are to be overweight or obese. So again, these are association studies, um, but we're starting to pair some of the observations in epidemiology with some understanding of the underlying metabolic reasons as to why that might be uh, predisposing someone to overweight. So it's not just simply the the, the crazy eating at 4 a.m. or midnight snacking, which is a no. It's, it's regularity of meal timing during the waking period and wanting to be consistent with meal timing. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to be consistent with the meal frequency, but you should be consistent, relatively consistent with timing. The negative effects of shifting a majority of calorie intake to later in the day. Um, and that's an observation that, 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 that as I've got further into this research, I've, I've changed thinking on because a lot of the paradigms that evolve nominally saying that they have a kind of circadian basis for them. Actually, when you look at them, some of the intermittent fasting regimes that are out there, the popular ones, a lot of them shift a lot of calories to later in the day. Um, and the more I've kind of gotten into this research, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's optimal for the vast majority of people. Yeah. If you're controlling calories and you're in a deficit, you know, most of these things fall away and they're irrelevant. And a lot of people put that argument forward and say, well, when you, when you control for calories and blah, 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 it's like, you know, you know what, that's making a really, really niche argument for a really narrow demographic of people who do control calories and stay in a calorie deficit. This is more to do with population health and, and, and the wider public, the 90% of people out there who don't control calories and are not trying to stay in a deficit yeah. slash get obesoline, you know? Yeah. That's, that's hugely interesting because um, certainly from a personal experience, I am one very much that 
I do shift a, mo a, like a reasonable amount of my, certainly not as much as I'm ever used to actually, but I, I used to shift a hell of a lot of my calories um, to the later evening time. Like sometimes I'd probably have 50% of my calorie intake from 6 p.m. onwards. Um, mm -hmm. It certainly didn't stop me uh, losing weight, probably because I am in that demographic of I was controlling calories, so it's pretty mm -hmm. simple. But um, I used to do it for adherence because for me it felt like I adhered better if I did that because I suppose I'm thinking from um, purely a routine perspective or just kind of like a, a social perspective of that, you know what it's like, you work a day job, you come home, you're sitting in front of the TV, you're bored and that's when boredom meeting and, and some of the other psychological factors as to why we kick in rather than you know like physiologically. Mm -hmm. So do you see that over... Actually, just on that, that's, that's, you touched on something there that's, that's, that's really interesting because... The other thing, I suppose, is a qualification for, for a lot of what I'm saying is that you know, this is a really nascent field. It's recently emerging, and, and uh, I hold no hard and fast positions in it. And I don't think, and I'm really skeptical when people do and try and make a circadian based argument for a way of eating that is optimal. And I'm like, mm, you know, this could change in two weeks. So. On that point, and something we need to look in a little more, I think, in 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 uh, you know in this field, is that the primary trigger for hunger, ghrelin, the the, the hormone, we it's gut derived hormone, and it's primarily entrained to fixed feeding patterns. However, it itself has a circadian rhythmicity, and what's interesting about it is it's not tied to the early part of the day. Ghrelin's low in the morning. It actually has its trough in the early part of the day that we would typically associate with breakfast. And it peaks at about 7 p.m. biological time. So this has been put forward as an explanation for why a lot of cultures around the world traditionally have very light or low energy, like the French. They have the croissants and a cigarette and an espresso and off they go. And there are examples of that culturally around the world. Now, they're not uniform, um, but it seems that independent of behavioral stuff, there is a peak of our hunger signaling in the biological evening. Um, so I think that, and, and again, and, and, and I've, I've been in that position where from an adherence perspective, from a behavioral perspective, particularly on a, on a fat loss diet where you've got X amount of calories to play with. And I'm typically not a morning hungry person. So I can get up and go about my day and get by on black coffee and a relatively light energetics kind of snack type of lunch, knowing on a fat loss diet that I'm coming home to tuck into a substantial meal and I'm going to go to bed full. The biological explanation that's been given for why ghrelin might peak in the evening is because we are actually going to go into a period of inactivity, rest and sleep and go through an extensive overnight fast. Um, it's interesting. There's some suggestions from this and other observations in the research that we are, you know, programmed to, I suppose, have hunger in, in that period of the day. So where I'm leaning now is not that we should be necessarily keeping calorie intake to a minimum past a certain point in time. 
there's two things that I think for me represent, I suppose, the best advice we could we could give. One is consuming certainly the biggest caloric meal of the day uh, at an earlier period, I think is is probably more optimal. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't stop you having a fairly good dinner, basically. But I do think that 7 to 8 p.m. versus 9 p.m. is where we need to be with, with that particular timing. Yeah. And that doesn't, that doesn't work for a lot of people with, uh, you know, you finish work at 5.30 and you go to train and, and you know, and then you get home at half eight. Um, you know, so typically for people that fall into that bracket, I, I do say, you know, if you're going to be coming home at, at half eight, nine o'clock, and that's your opportunity to have dinner, do do have most of your energy intake kind of in at that point so that dinner is relatively light. Um, because I think pushing past that nine o'clock period, you're getting into a point in time where we are going into the biological night. And because melatonin is going to increase again, melatonin is really interesting. It's, it's, it's a, kind of research interest of mine and my my other I have two supervisors my other supervisor is one of the, the most widely published melatonin researchers and uh, it's it's again it's typically being looked at as just the sleep hormone it actually there are melatonin receptors throughout the body and uh, different I think it's the next vitamin D you know 10 years ago everyone they discovered the you know or maybe 15 they discovered the vitamin D receptor and realized vitamin D did all this stuff throughout your body that was nothing to do with sunshine and everything to do with hormones and all this kind of stuff. And I think melatonin is kind of slowly emerging. There's melatonin receptors in the pancreas. It has a particular role in regulating insulin secretion. When melatonin levels are high during the biological night, you're I think we should be dumping in. I think we should be really looking at lean protein and veg, probably as opposed to roast potatoes and ribeye steak. Oh, yeah, it's, 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 interesting. it's interesting actually. So it's part of the reason I was willing to have someone come on the podcast and kind of talk about this stuff. Is your view, your willingness to state that you know your view could change on this quite a lot based on the research? Because I think it's quite open to abuse from what I have seen from certain people kind of selling stuff for the back of it is like the optimal diet based on this or you know you should live yeah. your life based on what is uh, it's not set in stone research and making yeah. very hard and fast rules about that yeah i i've seen one um really really you know big dude in the in the in the fitness and nutrition space and he's got a, a diet based around this stuff and but I've i've read a couple of articles and you know one was to do with metabolic inflexibility and the idea that well, if you have protein and fat in the early part of the day, it maintains metabolic flexibility. But if you have a carbohydrate-based meal, you go straight into carbohydrate oxidation and you lose that flexibility. That was a rat study. And I, I, think, that's, I think that's huge overreach from an animal model study in nocturnal biological creatures to an optimal way to eat for humans. Um, so I, I see some people reaching um from the evidence in this in this area and i think it's really interesting and it's it's emerging but the the 
the the kind of information I end up giving and advice I end up giving based on it is for me the best extrapolation of uh, you know uh, of of information from this area that we have at the present time um and that extrapolation factors in that a lot of the research is in animal models that we have relatively recently only recently emerging human data that a lot or the vast majority of the research is observational in nature and that when we are looking at the human research it's often very tightly controlled lab studies um, that are known as constant routine studies where they're basically looking, they're removing all of the external stimuli and just looking at what happens under, under conditions where everything is controlled, their light and stuff like that, um, and looking at circadian variations in you know, glucose metabolism or something like that. Or their circadian misalignment studies which again are done in incredibly tightly controlled laboratory conditions where people are brought in, they're given the right light exposure and meal timing to align them, and then they're kicked out of that by, they just completely switch their meal timing and their light exposure and stuff like that. So highly artificial uh, from a real world perspective, very informative, incredibly interesting, but doesn't speak to the fact that a nurse gets home from a shift at 7 a.m., tries to go to bed at 8, sleep till 2, shit sleep, wakes up because has to do a school run. None of these variables are, are accounted for. And also what it doesn't account for necessarily is, you know, um, the fact that in these controlled laboratory conditions, they're often... Uh, obviously controlling for calorie intake and a specific macronutrient profile, but you know, so if they want to look at the effects of circadian misalignment on glucose tolerance, you know, that they, they control for calories so they can look at the effects between circadian alignment versus misalignment. Again, that doesn't speak to how someone may shift energy intake in the real world. And the research on that from an observational perspective is like a hand grenade went off there. It's, it's, throw, it's, it's a Picasso. There's no rhyme or reason to it. There's observations, everything from um, during circadian misalignment, people increase meal frequency, people decrease meal frequency, people eat, skip breakfast and lunch and eat later in the day. Um, people um, alter the composition of their diet and consume more energy-dense foods, um, that's hypothesized to be because they're tired and their brain's tired and their brain wants quick energy. Um, the, the patterns of what happens to people's distribution of energy intake as a result of circadian misalignment in the real world is all over the place. So, yeah, and, and, and then, so that's, I suppose, that makes it difficult to, to kind of put a big picture together. And then the second one is, you know, the, 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 oh, well, there's an optimal way to eat because sure this hunger hormone peaks in the evening, therefore you should eat in the evening. And it's like, well, how do we, how do we reconcile the peak in ghrelin at 7 p.m. with the significant differences in your capacity to process blood sugar that occur earlier in the day? Yeah. I don't, I don't have an answer for that. Yeah. I don't think that's and that's why I think coming down on a hard and fast oh this is optimal eat protein and fat in the morning and then eat they eat this later or eat nothing in the morning and eat this later or eat everything in the morning and light later and it's like they probably all work they certainly all do work if calories are controlled for 
that's not the issue at a population level. The issue is how do we better advise time of day dependent eating in the real world so that people can actually improve their health. And in mm. that respect, if we're talking about real world applicability of this for people not controlling calories, I think it appears at this point far better for them to consume their biggest meal earlier in the day and a relatively smaller meal in the evening for dinner. That, that, it's interesting you said that because it was going through my mind a while ago when you were talking around the um, enhanced glucose um, tolerance and in the in the mornings, and obviously the fact that you you're saying that there's these um, circadian rhythm induced, if that's the right phrase, um, blood triglyceride levels in the evenings. And I was thinking it's, it sounds a bit contradictory. So what do you do? Where like it, I, I can't establish like what would be best for me to do in terms yeah, of when do I eat and, my meals or know, when do I can't. Again, like if we look at it. If we look at those variations through purely a macronutrient perspective, I think we can kind of miss the forest for the trees yeah. a bit. And we can say, well, if triglycerides peak in the evening, we should probably eat a lower fat meal in the evening. Um, and if glucose metabolism peaks in the early part of the day, we should eat carbohydrates in the early part of the day. A lot of that, that simplistic impression, particularly with carbohydrates, has been has formed the basis for a lot of the general pop culture nutrition advice out there, like eat all your carbs in the morning for breakfast. That's when you're now, again, that's, 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 that's where we get into some interesting nuances with this. So for example, there, there's an overlap in the morning and this is the two circadian hormones generally are considered melatonin and cortisol and melatonin peaks during the biological night. The two of them are offset in their rhythm. Uh, oppositional in, in 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 their peaks basically so melatonin will peak during the biological night it'll lower then and once we have exposure to natural light blue light it'll suppress cortisol peaks in the morning for us to get up and go and has a regulatory role in blood sugar processing and it has an interaction with insulin that's kind of difficult to tease out from some of the research so on the one level very high levels of cortisol uh, have a negative effect on blood glucose tolerance, which would indicate that you probably shouldn't be eating that early in the morning. Um, on the other hand, it seems that um, certain level of cortisol can actually kind of enhance or augment an insulin response to a meal such that carbohydrate is rapidly metabolized. So if we're talking about the general population breakfast composition of cornflakes and skim milk and a glass of Tropicana, Dumping that into the system at eight in the morning is potentially going to, and there's some interesting food-based recommendations showing this, lead to quite a significant peak um, and, and then drop in, in and, and a quicker return to hunger subsequent to that. Now, is that, is that a circadian variable? Um, likely not. It's probably more a reflection of meal composition at that particular time. Um, there, there, there's some, there's some stuff to tease out. I think in in this area, what I think ultimately it comes down to is that all of our processes of nutrient metabolism, whether that's fat metabolism or or carbohydrate metabolism, are enhanced generally during the waking active phase, i.e., from when you get up and you get natural exposure to sunlight. Let's say 8 a.m to 7, 8 p.m. So there, there, is a, there is a fairly broad window there, and I don't think that we need, really need to get into 
distinguishing an optimal time for one macronutrient over another, particularly with fat, because um, our our capacity to kind of allow fat enter and, and exit a cell is is pretty much enhanced all all the time. So we're, because we, we constantly have fatty acid turnover, so I, I've moved less. I've, I've kind of moved away from looking at this area of research through kind of the effects of one isolated macronutrients. You know, when you look at some of the paradigms that have evolved nominally based in, in a circadian sense, and they say, well, we, we emphasize protein and fat in the morning because X, Y, and Z. I'm like, well, well, if you're emphasizing protein in the morning, chances are you're getting a satiating effect of protein that's independent of anything circadian, you know, and you're, 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 you're having the, the benefit of that macronutrient on other processes. For me, really, when you look at it, I think that separating out the macronutrient probably um, isn't relevant because it's not how we eat um, food. We typically consume mixed meals, and that's what we're going kind of extreme bed or another. But for the most part, meals will be relatively mixed. And what I think this area is really speaking to is, is at a broad level, two things. One, um, try to consume our energy within the period of our main waking and active phase. And this is particularly true in the context of research showing that in industrialized countries, certainly in the UK, people spend up to 16 hours of the day in a, in a postprandial state. They're full. They're, they're eating all the time. <laughs> from, the, from the moment they get up to the moment they go to bed. And so people at a population level have kind of divorced from the idea of kind of timing. And it's, as long as I'm awake, food's available. You know, Netflix at 10 p.m., let's go for the popcorn and, the, and whatever else. So I think that really at the, at the most fundamental basic level, distilling this kind of area of research into something practical, it's confining period in which we eat to uh, the waking and active phase and probably for, for, for best effects confine that to about an 11 hour period. If you're someone that has to get up really early in the morning for school runs or for commutes, you know, 5 a.m. kind of thing, don't eat. It's still your biological night. This is something that I come across a lot. People that are up really, really early tend to assume, well, I'm awake, it's breakfast time. No, it's still your biological night. And there is human research to show that people that do eat at a time that corresponds with a five and a half hour sleep and a wake time of 5 a.m., you know, you're, you're, you're about as insulin resistant as a pre-diabetic at that point in time. Melatonin still elevated and there's really um, impaired um, you know, pancreatic beta cell function. So don't eat at that period, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. That's quite interesting because that, that is B. <laughs> I think, Brizzle, you're probably a 5 a.m. as well. But um, I, I naturally have never eaten, never had hunger drive at that time. Um, Most people wouldn't. That's the yeah. thing, is the circadian impact on that. Most people shouldn't have any drive to eat at 5 a.m., <laughs> even if they're awake. Mm. I, yeah. I, I find that interesting the amount of people that say to me they are breakfast eaters and I am incredibly famished when I wake up and then when you say to them well actually let's let's just test that have a few days of just not having it so you get on and almost all of them say I was fine 
didn't even need mm-hmm. breakfast yet. Mm-hmm. I've always had it that in my head that I have to have breakfast when I wake, and it's even even at say like eight nine o'clock. Even at that time, yeah. not not as early that's, as five. That's, that's definitely going into the behavioural aspects, mm. but it's also factoring in that ghrelin will entrain to meal timing. Mm. So if someone does habitually consume their eight o'clock breakfast, they're going to probably have some sort of hunger signaling as a result of ghrelin entrainment going on at that particular time. All they have to do is break that pattern. So that, that particular and, and reestablish a new, you know, a new, a new kind of meal timing. Um, so typically you're right. What, what ends up happening is people are like, well, no, 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 I'm, I'm really hungry in the morning. I can't possibly imagine pushing breakfast, my first meal back for X amount of time. Um, you know, and they do, and and maybe day one they're a little, but you know, three days later they're like, no, it's fine. So I'm, gl- that's I'm, an I'm glad you said that because one of my next questions was going to be around that: is there any way of almost reprogramming or conditioning your meal timing? So obviously, with meal timing being kind of interlinked with circadian rhythm, is there a way of you just retraining it? So you've kind of answered that, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So again, I suppose reiterating that idea that meal timing as we've labeled them breakfast lunch and dinner is relatively arbitrary um you know for me my for example my my meal timing my breakfast is usually about 10 30 give or take lunch could be about half two and i i typically try and have dinner by about 7 30 um 7 7 30 if i'm not training it'll be it'll be around six to seven and if i am it'll typically end up being about 7 30 so that's my meal timing it's not necessarily a breakfast at 8 a.m., a lunch at 1 p.m., and a, you know. Mm-hmm. So the timing is what matters and the consistency of that timing relatively. So can you change that? Absolutely, because your meal timing provides you with a consistent anchor towards that circadian synchronization. Now, I combine that meal timing, which is very much, uh, it, it's not... It's not extremely time restricted. It's not a six hour eating window. I used to do that and push that feeding window back to later in the day. That's something that on the basis of the majority of the research in this field, I've shifted away from and I slowly expanded my window. Um, you know, what, you know, really, if, if we're, if we're really splitting hairs here, do we really think, that there's that much of a difference between a six hour fast and a 10 hour fast. You know, most of the, most of the paradigms that support a time restricted feeding scenario, you know, like Martin Birkin's lean gains, for example, they expressly involve calorie counting and macronutrient counting. So it, 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 it's kind of irrelevant. Mm. It, it wouldn't matter that you're eating within 12 hours or six hours, your rate of fat loss is going to be the same. You're not enhancing like, you know, um, your 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 net fat loss is going to be a, a function of your deficit, uh, and that's the bottom line. So, for me, I think you know, and for most people, I think you know, just expanding that window out a little more so you do get nutrient intake in the early part of the day as well. Um, but making sure that you get some sort of light exposure to help entrain that. Now, for a lot of people in our climates. That's not possible other than at times of the year, say from now until October. 
So I don't know if you've seen it on my Insta stories at all, but like I have this little blue light box. Yeah, I was going to get onto that actually. Yeah, I had some questions around that. Get 30, 45 minutes of that on my face every morning, particularly in the winter. Um, and the difference is, is night and day. So I, I control my light environment in addition to the regularization of, of, of meal timing. Um, I still I still do extensive fasts, which I'm I'm just interested in for general health purposes. I don't fast to create a calorie deficit necessarily or enhance fat loss. I'm much more interested in the underlying metabolic um, and perhaps neurological benefits of extensive fasting. Um, and for that, you know, I might do one 24-hour fast a week, but I'm not... I'm not um I'm not approaching that from a a kind That's of it. calories perspective. For a lot of people, again, from the behavioral standpoint, they might go dinner to dinner. I'll typically go meal breakfast, if you want to call it that, to breakfast the following day. So I'll have my normal breakfast at ten, ten thirty, and then I just fast through to the next day. Um and that's that's my twenty four hour fast, although it's not quite twenty four hours because I'm probably four or five hours digesting that meal so but that's that's something i do just for general health purposes um yeah yeah, yeah cool. sorry i was trying to step back to the the light thing so it's quite interesting so personally obviously i, I work in an office environment so I, i'm up at 5 a.m and so generally uh commuting in the dark into the office which is obviously artificial lighting for whatever time i get in uh six half six seven whatever it is um my hunger <laughs> my hunger signaling I, I i've never really thought about this before it's very different working from home versus working in the office mm. i wonder if it, that is anything to do with the light part of the circadian rhythm you talk to it, it it may do um there's some interesting impacts of light on metabolism and if the if <laughs> if the rest of this research is is a bit of a gray area. This this is this is really recently emerging. Yeah. So one study, for example, looking at the effects of three hours of a certain amount of blue light exposure in the evening, um, you know, decreased, um, basically, like uh, resulted in in a degree of insulin resistance in the evening. Is that relevant for the way that we kind of sit around seventy inch plasmas in the evening? Maybe, maybe I don't know. Um, there, there is some interesting research on the one of the effects of sleep curtailment per se, independent of any circadian influence, is that you see a significant increase in subjective hunger. Um, you know, you, you you really dysregulate ghrelin increases by like thirty percent, even if you've had five and a half hours sleep, which for some people they would consider that a good a good night's sleep. There's been some interesting research doing using forced sleep, curtailed sleep uh, periods, um, looking at the effect of blue light exposure then on hunger and appetite. And blue light exposure for someone that has had curtailed sleep the night before will attenuate the hunger increasing effects of curtailed sleep. So there's a physiologically arousing effect of light on, on, hum, on the human circadian system. Um, and it, 
may, but this is again, trying to judge this from research in sleep curtailed individuals. Does light suppress appetite? Um, maybe. In, in sleep curtailed individuals, it seems to be of benefit um, to hunger regulation. Would it impact on um, you know well rested you know uh, yeah. individuals? Possibly not. Um, insofar as they're 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 regulated by the fact that they have slept well and are, for all intents and purposes, you know, kind of aligned. If they've slept a, a normal ten till six night sleep, for example, um, through the biological night, there's light would be physiologically arousing at that point. But again, you know, for the most part, metabolic functions are tied to that period of the day, which typically is when we have most of our nutrient intake. So you could get a hunger suppressing effect. Um, I'm not sure whether it would enhance appetite necessarily. Just on that, I was listening as a while ago now, so it might have been the back end of last year to one of Danny mm. Lennon's uh, Sig Nutrition podcasts. And they had a guy on yeah. there called Greg Potter. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I'm well familiar with, with Greg Potter's. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't say I, I was before, but they did, D- Danny um, brought out something quite interesting where, so obviously you're talking about your blue box or your blue light box. He said, obviously, that was something that he'd started doing in that because he works in an office in his house, pretty much yeah. all day and have no natural exposure to natural light. Mm-hmm. Um, he was kind of obviously having this blue box to, to give him that. And I can't remember exactly what they were talking about now, but I think it was something on the lines of that. If you don't have enough of this exposure to blue light during the day, it does affect your sleep cycles at night. Am I right? Or hundred percent. That's a great point. So what's really interesting about this is again, and we, we touched on this at the very start that, the, the, above all other variables, the primary factor that synchronizes our circadian rhythms is exposure to light. So by getting exposure to light, that signals daytime, and then everything else is getting timed from that. Mm. And blue light exposure in the morning will do that. But one of the really interesting, um, a couple of actually interesting points on that The first is, and I find this fascinating, the entraining effect of natural light is more potent than the exact same intensity and wavelength of artificial light. So we can take two people, expose them to the same intensity and wavelength of of light. One is artificial light, maybe from a blue box, and the other is just from going for a walk, you know, for 30 minutes in, in on a nice day. And natural light is going to have a more potent effect than artificial light, which is really interesting. And the, the, the idea there is a blue light box is giving you certainly the intensity, but it's, it's giving it to you in kind of very confined circumstances. It's a small device and it's kind of coming straight. Whereas when you're actually in the external environment and out of an enclosed building, it's much more of a lightscape um, and, and, and more impactful for that, for that reason. So that's one, Our, a natural light typically. And so at this time of year, uh, I'll often, I, I try to myself and I try and recommend people to try and get that 30 minutes outdoor because even if it's an overcast day, 
the intensity of light is going to be better than what you're getting indoors. And that's that's the second point. Um, most offices, for example, or our home environments, even if we've it lit up like a Christmas tree and the big kind of, you know, overhead lights and stuff, average office lighting is, uh, and this is a measure of intensity, 500 lux. Lux is a measure of light intensity. The minimum we need relatively for, for proper circadian entrainment is about a thousand. Even on an overcast, cloudy Irish or English day, you're going to get 2000 anyway. So you'll still on a crap wet day, get more entrainment from actually being outside than you will from being inside. And one of the big, one of Greg Potter's papers actually that he, he, he wrote with my, one of my co-supervisors was um they made the point that in uh, in industrialized societies we spend 88% of our time indoors in enclosed buildings i was like we're like rats in a cage <laughs> and the average time spent outdoors is 1 to 3 hours and that that hit me because i i work from home two or three days a week and i go into the law library here two or three days a week so it varies um and I started getting pretty paranoid after that. And I was like, wow, I really, you know, have become so much more aware of that statistic as it relates to my day-to-day -day life. And so, and again, part of it is we're enforced, right? We don't have great climates. So, you know, trying to improve simply how much time we spend outdoors is, is, can be a, a big one you know, in terms of circadian regulation and making sure that we do get the right light exposure at yeah. the right times. And part of the problem with this whole area of, of social jet lag, shall we say, or circadian uh, kind of more, less, less extreme circadian dysregulation is that these internal signals that we give ourselves to do with light, we flipped night and day on their head, basically. And you have people who maybe get up and it's dark outside and they commute to work in a car and they go into an office light environment that's way less than we need for circadian entrainment. And they spend till 5 p.m. there and then they leave work and it's dark and they go home. But the next minute they go into the 70-inch plasma, the smartphone, the Kindle, and they're bombarding themselves with an intensity and it was the same Greg Potter paper that made this point that people are exposed to an intensity of light in the evenings. By the way, it is 8.30 now. So <laughs> uh, people are exposed to an intensity of light in the evenings that is double what they're exposed to during the day. So, and, and again, part of our, our <laughs> the hubris of our prefrontal cortex is people look out the window and go, but it's dark outside. I, I know it's nighttime. And it's like, this isn't about what you think you know. This is about internal signaling that, it, yeah. that a part of your brain is picking up on through a very specialized set of cells in your eyes that are designed to do one thing, and that is relay information about light to your brain. I, and that would hence is the uh, the glasses, right? Hence the glasses. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. That's just a, a blue light thing in terms of you know. Really? Yeah, you still you still on the computers at evening. I'm guessing still on your smartphone. Are you, or so do you I try limit, limit that? Yeah, exactly. I have a software on the computer called Flux, 
Oh yeah, I've got that actually. And you can download that. That will dim your screen naturally. And it's excellent. And I will wear these, for example, if the TV is going to be on. I typically dim my overall light environment in my apartment. So I, I don't go with big overhead lights that I'd have on during the day if I'm working here. I, I have a small side light on. Um, and I typically put these on, give or take, around whenever sunset is. So someone said to me the other day, they were like, oh, you're not wearing your things. And I was like, no, but the hour's gone back. It's like 6.30. It's right outside. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you don't necessarily need to, but it does, it does definitely help with, um, with, it does definitely help with, um, with minimizing, you know, the exposure that you have. And, and again, thankfully, this isn't tinfoil hat stuff because they've done, some research looking at the effects of glasses like this on melatonin secretion. Um, and one was interesting because it was in teens playing video games. So the proximity to the screen was quite close. And the difference in their nocturnal elevation and melatonin was, was enormous. So I think in terms of maintaining a healthy circadian rhythm, controlling your light environment a bit more. Now, some people think these are a bit much and the orange tint does make them a little tinfoil hat. However, you can get glasses now that do block blue light but are clear through. So they would simply just look like normal glasses. Dude. Now, for people that don't want to go to that extreme and actually wear glasses in the evening, what I typically would say is just control your light environments, have soft lighting, uh, side lighting, um, nothing that's really overhead or direct, and then start to power down your exposure to blue light about, I, I typically say 90 minutes. That seems to be a bit much for people. So I've modified that recommendation to an hour before your targeted sleep time. If you want to go to bed at 10 p.m., turn off the TV, you know, power down the smartphone, and read a book mm. by candlelight. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you know, yeah. And it's and it's simple stuff like that that can make a big difference. But again, you do meet a lot of resistance when it comes to the kind of behavioral modifications. To, to be fair, uh, your your point about the uh, tin tin hat. Um, yeah, I. You know, I have seen various things, and it's my view has slightly changed that. You, I guess been involved in some of the nutrition stuff over the past yeah, probably been around six or seven years and you see the extremes so you tend to always be a bit wary but like you said um i've started to have a look at some of the research and based on something someone sent me the other day around this and it's it, it's not like a, a made-up woo thing or you're not you're not making any far-reaching claims that are particularly wackier out there it's you know it is rooted in some sort of evidence so hmm little things I've started to do in terms of, you know, I was, I was one of those people who said my sleep was fine. Um, mm -hmm. typical person, you know, I work in office, work early, finish late and come home and sit in front of a computer or TV, whatever it is. And I've always been like, yeah, it's fine. But actually when I've made some of those changes, um, in terms of, you know, getting rid of electronics, reading, having low lights, stuff like that, my sleep has been considerably and noticeably better. Um, and yeah, that's had a knockout impact. So as that's yeah. improved, my day the next day is better. So my morning's better. I'm more productive yeah. in the morning I find. And then 
I don't slump so much in the afternoon and just generally my hunger is better whether that's me reading too much into it and having a placebo effect or whatever it may be um oh and you know what I think you're right so actually one of one of the ways that I try and you know I suppose sell people on taking a few steps to to kind of improve your um sleep and the quality of it and which very much again is tied to the stuff that we're talking about in terms of light exposure and, and meal timing um is look try try these steps and if you don't notice a difference it's fine right you can go back to doing you know watching netflix seven inches from your face in in your bed <laughs> before you go to sleep invariably you find that someone comes back saying jesus i'm i'm so much more energetic in the morning um and i i don't wake up as tired as i did and because the amount of people i swear to god if i had a euro slash pound for every time someone said but i sleep particularly in the winter i sleep eight hours a night but i'm really tired in the morning it's like yeah but like what what does your internal architecture think it is as far as time goes and this is funny the and the amount of people that are running on 60 percent in terms of how they feel every day it's like mm. yeah I, I guess the biggest tell for me in terms of actually noticing the difference was my fiance um is a very light sleeper i'm not i didn't think i was um but in terms of the alarms in the morning i never used to wake up for them as in they would be going off for 10 15 minutes she'd wake up and i'd get a a pillow to the head or whatever it may be um and now i'm actually waking up on a, a lot of silent or a, a yeah. less loud alarm which you know yeah. those kind of little things you think again my tendency is to lean towards the the woo side of things and be very cautious but yeah i, I can say that has made a, a yeah. quite astounding I, difference well the, the, again the whole purpose of of these internal rhythms from a from a biological perspective is that they're in anticipatory in nature. They're to allow an organism, you know, become the early bird and get the worm, so to speak. And that means that when you do pay attention to these variables and regulate your bedtime and the time that you would like to wake at and your light exposure and all this kind of stuff, but invariably ends up happening is you should get tired around the same time every night and you should pretty much wake up without an alarm at the same time every morning that's real alignment mm-hmm. um now it's not you know it's we, we we live in the modern world so let's not try and and i i in an area where you could easily become like very monk-ish you know if you were to put all this stuff in place like we still live in the real world you know you're 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 still you know going to go out with the lads on uh the odd saturday and you know it's going to be a late finish and this kind of stuff and so you know we factor that in and it's fine and and it's not about um you know retreating to a circadian temple for (laughs) for the rest of our lives i like everything with nutrition and health i really really do believe it's what you do 80 90 percent of the time that matters Um, i i just want to reaffirm that in that it's uncanny how often i would say more often than not i'll wake up 
just literally minutes before my alarm's due to go off most days because I am very much a man of habit and routine regardless mm-hmm. like I go to sleep the same days at weekends and weekdays outside of like you say the odd occasion but it mm. does definitely show in terms of just general well-being I think yeah. that's one of the things I, I, I advocate a lot to a lot of people and say look just get some routine habits because the 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 increase in just general like almost unquantifiable well-being like as as in you can't you, you know you yeah, can it's you can tangible monster. stuff um in many respects and it's also tangible like there are significant links between this kind of dysregulation and curtailed sleep and mood and depression for example um you know so i i think that these improvements and of course then you've got everyone that's like oh you know so great when you go on your sun holiday and God, once the sun's out, everyone's mood's so good. I'm like, yeah. oh, random. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, the holiday effect, actually, when that's probably... Especially in Ireland, where, like, we're a fairly depressed country, naturally. So you, you get these days during the summer when the sun comes out, and the next minute the whole city of Dublin is by the canal, drinking cans and beers outside, and everyone's just in the best mood ever. And you're like, yeah. oh, my God, it's amazing. Everyone's in such a good mood. The sun's out. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, like, you know, this, this again, this is not random. The Scandinavian countries had a big impetus for this stuff in the last few years because of the really high rates of seasonal affective disorder that people might suffer. And so... Yeah, because the short daylight hours are there. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, within their public health recommendations, they have, you know, like blue light exposure in the winter and stuff like that. It's almost become a population-wide intervention. That's recommended for the winter months. So, you know, these are our, our, our response. The human response to light cues is very, very strong. Um, and that's potentially why things like, you know, sitting up till midnight in an artificially in an environment of, of quite strong artificial light, you know, this could come back and bite us again. I don't want to come down on on any hard and fast positions in this, but. Um, there's a researcher called Ruth Patterson who's looked at um, the, the breast cancer association with this um, regulation and, and, and what she found uh, again in an observational study of, of breast cancer remission was that um, women who had on average a 13 hour uh, kind of fasted window starting at 7 p.m. So again, earlier timing of dinner and following that a 13 hour period of, of no fasting or no, no nutrient ingestion, a 40% reduction in recurrence. Like that's, that's an enormous statistic. Mm. Um, and so I think that, you know, as, as, as some of the, the, the kind of papers that you would read in this area, you know, we, we go against our clocks at our peril. Um, we didn't choose them. They were selected um, for us over a process of evolution. And we're the only species that overrides our own biology. You don't see this anywhere else in the animal kingdom. Mm. You know, Again, I, I think I called it the, the hubris of our prefrontal cortex earlier, and, and it is. You do not see any example anywhere else in the animal world of a species overriding its internal biological rhythms for its own 
pleasure seeking and or otherwise purposes. Yeah. Um, and I think I think I think we should take stock of that. Um, and I think that these recommendations, certainly at a population level, are ultimately relatively uh, no cost, um, potentially high yield in terms of the impacts on people's health um, and really, really easy to implement. You know, like I said earlier, you're not asking someone necessarily to change their diet. You're asking them to simply time restrict their feeding. In the process of doing that, they drop maybe four or five or six hundred extra discretionary calories that they were eating at 930 while they were putting on the movie. You know, but now they just have this hard and fast rule of I'm going to stop eating by 8 p.m. You know, simple stuff. Cool. I am. I honestly think we could chat about this for hours. It's so like super <laughs> yeah. interesting. Um, but you've been so overly generous for your time already. Um, At all. It's been a pleasure. No, it's been super cool. Um, and I'll be honest, I'm sure, Matt, you'll agree, but we'd love to get you on again uh, sometime yeah. soon or in the future, just yeah. even if we pick a different topic or whatever, but it's just super cool stuff. Um, yeah, I think I think I said to you, I said to the boys, actually, so we, like, we always look out for guests and stuff, and I, I said, I'm a pretty... Uh, pretty grumpy one of the group, I guess. So I, I said, actually, you know, there's someone on Instagram whose stories I actually, sorry, Brizzle, I know you put lots up, but it's all gem pop. Um, but there's, there's stuff on there that actually, you know, I hold down the screen and like to read. And I, I feel like sometimes I screenshot some of your stuff and there's stuff that I take away or stuff that confuses me, which leads me to go spend more time in front of a screen. So um, ironically. Yeah. So yeah, it's really, if anyone doesn't, doesn't follow you, uh, your your instagram um what's your handle it's the nutritional advocate isn't it the nutritional advocate yes there an uh, underscore in there somewhere play on my lawyer life <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah anyone anyone listening go and check out the safe stories there like some of the stuff yeah. is really really cool and the, the detail tomorrow about uh, fructose um and that the 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 single out blame it seems to have gotten for obesity so hopefully that'll be informative for people that are falling foul of sugar zealots nice like, i think i even saw um i think it was on uh, we, we haven't spoken about it actually this podcast i think it was on dr mike's instagram he, he screenshotted a, a reply you did on the um the new government guidelines which yeah yeah i'm the only person that interpreted them really positively um the public health england campaign got a real backlash um from nutritionists and dietitians and people in the health space and a lot of the doctors that you know i'm I'm kind of friends with in the bslm and and i just didn't think it was warranted i mean we've finally taken an energetic approach to an issue that at a population level in the most vulnerable population groups you know they don't have access to very much beyond convenience and industry um industry born food so being able to with industry target a reduction in the energy content of those foods and then mandate that fast food areas and and, and food outlets put publish the calorie content of their meals and then giving people a calorie framework to say well that subway is 600 calories sure i'll have that like you know it's an imperfect solution to a problem but people looking to expect that everyone starts to wake up tomorrow making instagram style smoothie bowls is sorely misinformed about what's going on at the population level on the ground and i think we need to check a bit of that social media nutritional ivory tower 
and start to work with the problem as opposed to, you know, trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Yeah. I'm, I'm all for education, but education is going to take us a generation. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, we, did a, we did a podcast on, on the exact same say, thing, yeah. and I think we were very much on the same page as, as what I saw, I guess, your reaction to it in terms of, you know, finally, we're not fighting over carbs, fats, or yeah. one single yeah. macronutrient. It's, you know, yeah. energy density, which... Yeah, and people don't like that, you know, because people don't like that focus. And most of the narrative I saw on Instagram was, well, you know, this is just going to tell people to reduce energy but not improve their diets. It's like, yeah, yeah. So what? Yeah. Exactly. Health, health will improve 100% across population. So. Exactly. So, you know, and, 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 and there was this kind of you know, expectation that, oh, well, you know, it'll, it, people won't, you know, improve their diets. And I'm like, how are you going to improve their diets? And some of the doctors that work in low socioeconomic status areas actually were the ones that, 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 that messaged me with support saying, yeah, like, I mean, the realities of what you deal with in low income areas in terms of what actually is available, what the diet actually is. And I'm, I'm doing diet uploading for data upload into a nutrition software for my dissertation. And like, you can't make it up. You yeah. can't make it up. There's a whole day of literally just like crisps, mm -hmm. sandwiches, deli sandwiches, chocolate bars and fish and chips for dinner. There, yeah. you know, this this avocado and chia seeds are not on the menu. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. And um, the whole the whole quality versus you know. <laughs> quality versus quantity argument is very misaligned. I feel, but yeah, yeah, I did I did like that. So yeah, definitely check that cool. out as well. So um, yeah. let, before we get on to the healthy any size uh, debate any <laughs> any longer, um, no. To, to be fair, um, obviously we did chat about that before, didn't we? So that could be a cool topic. Maybe that's one to get back on because we kind of touched on that a little bit there. That um, could, yeah. And I think I think the saturated fat thing. I think I need to be a good foot soldier for my supervisor. Yeah, and, cool. And, and and that's a big issue that has really gathered traction. And Time Magazine running covers saying butter is back, and cardiologists coming out saying we were wrong about saturated fat. And I think of all public health issues, the last <laughs> anyone at the population level needs to be doing is putting butter in their coffee. Mm. But you know, um, but it's a nuanced, very from a nutrition science perspective, like it's a really interesting, deep, nuanced topic in terms of explaining why the associations are valid. And not just associations, but 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 if we apply a beyond reasonable doubt evidential standard of proof, causative, you know, causative of heart disease if if we get the diet wrong on a fat balance perspective. So let's yeah, definitely let's, would, let's sort that out. would like you on that, yeah, because I think for the nutritional geeks amongst us, that's something we kind of dine out on. So yeah, it'd be great to cool. Yeah. I've seen the Insta stories already, but let's um let's so so. Before we get to the final, final piece, there we yeah. when we have guests, we do tend to ask, we like to ask a few questions at the end that um, are not necessarily nutrition related, just yeah. for just for a bit of fun. So there's yeah. only there's only a few, so it's good. It gets to know gets to know the guest a bit as well. So, um, what so Alan, what is your favourite flexible food? So by flexible, I mean like the uh, diet. yeah 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 IFYM. What, what's your favourite so junk food? I would say. A food that I would consume regularly, 
within my kind of what I am tracking, which I am now because I've a I've a I compete in powerlifting, so I'm kind of I'm in and around my off season weight, um, two and a half thousand calories worth of Easter bunny that I consume today. Accepted. We'll see what the scale says tomorrow. But my probably most regularly included would be fruit pastilles or skittles. Okay. Uh, Pre workout, I just I adore fruit pastilles. Uh, that's a childhood love uh, thanks mom and skittles yeah okay. yeah it's so like, i would like the probably, you know yeah they, they, they'd probably be relatively weekly maybe like three times a week type of consumption because i'm yeah so i'm gonna go fruit pastilles and skittles good answer um, and or what's yeah. what's the best burger joint you've ever visited oh so that's a great question. Um, I am going to say mm, best burger joints. Jesus. It's mm. <laughs> on the spot. Tell you what, actually. There, there is, but see, no one that I was in my head. The reason I paused there was I was like, I can come out with something random, which is which is the place, but like no one would know it. So it's you, you should say that though, because Brazil is is a burger fiend, and we'll visit it probably. Yeah. Right. So it, I don't even know that it's there anymore. It was in my brother went to college in Wisconsin in a, a town called Madison, and there was a a guy who did you know, had this very simple burger hut. And he used to do these deep fried burgers, you know, catfish and chicken and stuff, and put it together uh, with hot sauce, mayo, lettuce. And I don't think he ever changed the oil. So it had that really <laughs> wonderful taste that, you know, when you walk by a kind of a McDonald's, you get that smell. You're like, oh, I know that's foul, but like, it's so good. Um, so yeah, and he used to wrap it in tin foil, and if, if you if you just left it for about twenty minutes, it kind of all just congealed together into this wonderful hot sauce burger. Cool. Yeah, well, it was called Gins. Yeah. Well, I'll, uh, I'll I'll be sure to check that out. Are you whereabouts in Ireland? You based? Never, Dublin. Dublin. Have we, you, we have a pretty we have a couple of pretty good burgers. Yeah, here, I went I went to a place called Farmer Browns in Dublin. Oh yes, yeah, it's that right was, in the corner for me. That was pretty good. Yeah, that was pretty good. I did, I did enjoy that one. Um, cool. Um, best piece of advice you've ever been given? Doesn't have to be nutrition related. Best piece of advice I've ever been given. Um, uh, this is a little um, cheesy, maybe, or not. Um, but it was from a, a kind of mentor figure to me who is very big into meditation and, and kind of Eastern philosophy. And it was a concept um, called standing firm in your truth. And it resonated a lot because, um, you know, I kind of, as you guys probably, maybe this applies to you too, because, you know, you, 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 you have your jobs and you have your nutrition and it's this idea that we can be multifaceted and that's a good thing. And the 
a kind of concept now is everyone is kind of everyone is keen to want to pigeonhole um, and, and and apply certain tags to themselves. Yeah. And it's like actually, what's left when you shake off all the labels that we like to give ourselves and the stories we like to tell ourselves and the narratives we've developed over the years about ourselves, and it's just you know you and your truth. And so by standing firm in that, you live congruent with exactly who you are and you've always been without any attachments to any labels or any expectations of what other people think you should be doing. Um, and that's something that I really kind of do try and, um, you know, acknowledge every, every day. I used to be really uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, I was a lawyer pursuing this, you know, other avenue and, uh, really compartmentalized the two areas didn't really tell anyone in work and you know that piece of advice has allowed me to totally get over that relatively arbitrary hang-up um and actually live it um so, so I, like i ended up giving a a, a talk uh, kind of on this stuff um to a group of colleagues last tuesday uh, and it was it was really well received and you know so yeah, you know, it's it's that idea of kind of standing firm in your truth with, with quite, what, um, what you're about. It's quite interesting. You said you compartmentalise your two, two yeah. things because I I do exactly the same. So I'm in banking. Uh, no mm. one in banking. They know I dabble. That's what I think. I kind of mucked around a bit with it. The the only the only way anyone found out I worked that I kind of was involved was when we had someone from work turn up to one of our group programs. Um, and I saw the form come through and I was like, oh, so some people do know. But yeah, it's funny how you you try and keep those things separate sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I think part of it is because, you know, there's a, you know, there, there may be some perceptions that people have um, about it or they might question your commitment to your given kind of job or, or something like that. Um, and, you know, with that kind of Cal Newport expression of be so good they can't ignore you. That was always kind of my my take on it was like, well, as long as I'm getting all of my shit done and I'm on top of my game in here, it doesn't really matter what I pursue outside mm -hmm. of here. And loads of people have different aspects outside of their professional life. Um, and I think that it's totally fine to have your profession and have your passion and they don't necessarily have to be the same thing. And you can pursue both. Um, and I'm kind of relentlessly pursuing both at the minute yeah. and seeing where it ends up that's totally nice. cool yeah, uh, like that. last question then so and this yeah. is this is the biggie so <laughs> would you rather be attacked by a horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses Ooh, that's a great question it is um just you can take you can, yeah, well, yeah. you can take a second yeah. just to kind of visualize it and really take in the context of the the predicament that that causes yeah see the thing i fear about the horse-sized duck is its beak but if you had a hundred duck-sized horses it's a lot there's a lot to nip away at like a horse's bite isn't exactly isn't exactly um soft soft yeah plus they can kick um plus, plus i'm actually going to go i'm going to go with 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 
horse-sized duck. I just feel that there are some physical limitations to the duck, webbed feet, stuff like that. I reckon you could probably get at the ankles without it getting at you. And if you could somehow cripple it at that level, you could probably take it out. Nice. Very logical answer. I think that's such a, a logical uh, one before. Yeah, but I, I would also say the minority of answers. Really? Yeah. People go, I could just imagine a hundred fucking <laughs> yeah. horses yeah. That's ge- that, at you. That's, you know? generally my rea- that's generally my reaction when someone says I'll go for the hundred uh, duck-sized horses. I'm like, really? No, man, horses, are, horses aren't to be messed with. No, they're not. I've, said, I, I've always said, if you've ever seen like a... And I appreciate size wise, but you've ever seen like a 16 and a half hand Arab say they are very muscular, dense. Yeah. And you think, yeah. okay, yes, you're shrinking that down to a smaller animal, but still, a uh, there's a lot of horsepower there still, massive, you know, and you've got a hundred of them to reckon with. It's like, how are you going to, even if you manage to take out 50, like you're, you're just going to be exhausted. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. I, I back it with the duck. The duck could, you know, you'd get a, but you could get a bad bite, but really, you know, it's fairly useless out of water. Yeah. So, well, yeah, man, we agree. Good. Yeah. Cool. Right. No, uh, just again, thank you. Um, it's been brilliant. We'll definitely get you on again. Um, such fascinating Sorry, stuff. Absolutely. Uh, Matt's obviously shouted out your socials slightly, but do you want to just plug anything you want to plug or like your Instagram? Um, no, just, just the Instagram for now. I do have, um, a new site, um in the workings but it's probably about a week or two away so i'll just end up saying it on instagram whenever it goes live um we'll 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 stick your hand on stuff in the show notes so people can find you if they want to contact you or find out a bit more cool well big thank you for me i'm sure matt Matt, Matt, thanks very much that was uh actually an an, an excellent and (laughs) in-depth yeah Tour through circadian rhythms. So you, you, you hold our record for our longest episode, I'd imagine. Now, wow, right? Yeah, even <laughs> even viewers even, actually stick with it. Yeah. Even even even, uh, even Martin, Martin wasn't it? Yeah, he, even he's not lasted this long. So, Martin McDonald's. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, okay, I might have to. Um, that's that's something I'm now immensely proud that's of. An accomplishment of half. Yeah, he's obviously <laughs> a, a figure I hold in incredibly high esteem, possibly the highest. Yeah, he, he does love attention as well. So he does. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Brilliant. Right. Well, we'll That's say we'll let, 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 let you get off to get some sleep. Yeah. Cool. Right. We'll say bye. Thanks for listening to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast. We'll speak to you all next week. <laughs>